0: health community, the occupational hygiene side of the equation was a little slow, in my opinion. And the wave of the asbestos broke so high and so fast that they needed professionals to help deal with it. Quite a few of us on the occupational safety side actually wandered in, if you will, because there was such need on the asbestos side and started cutting our teeth on the occupational health side. And I am proud to say I was one of the founding members of the Asbestos Victims of America.
1: You are listening to the Manage Mold Podcast. This podcast was made for families on a health journey that need the real, no-holds-barred answers on how to create and ensure a healthy home. This show should be your launching pad to give you the information, guidance, and inspiration and clarity you need on your journey back to a healthy home. My name is Dean Malstead. You can find and follow me on Facebook and LinkedIn. Welcome to Manage Mold. We are on the Manage Mold Podcast, and today we have an amazing guest. This is one of my favorite people in the world, uh, because this person and his wife, this is Michael Pinto, he brought our family through a really dark time in our life when we were dealing with the mold issues. So if you listen to Podcast One, we told you about that story, and this is my, what I consider my chief mentor. In the industry and in this realm of mold. And so we've got an amazing opportunity today that Michael is sitting down with us and he's going to share a little bit about his background and where he's come from and what he does in this industry. So without further delay, welcome Michael Pinto.
0: Well, thank you very much. I think this might be one of those cases where the uh, student has surpassed the master. So. I don't, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but it's a pleasure to be on the podcast and I'm all excited about this and congratulations on your adventure there, Dean. This is great. So Michael, can you share with
1: us a little bit of your background so people who don't know who you are can relate to and, and understand why you're an important piece in my life?
0: I certainly can and I could start at a lot of different places, but I think it makes the most sense if people want to understand a little bit about me to go back to my college days. I started college at Western Michigan University, which is our hometown, and essentially was convinced that I wanted to be a teacher. And I couldn't quite figure out whether I wanted to be a math or a physics instructor, and so those were a dual major, math and physics, as I went through college, until second semester junior year, And some of the physics got real theoretical at that point. Uh, you got to remember this is 40-some years ago. So we weren't quite as advanced as we are now. We didn't have the understanding of quarks and some of the small particles like we do now. But literally, my chairperson of the physics department said, you've got a good handle on this, but you don't understand, quite bluntly, the philosophical background on some of this. And he Uh, suggested that I take a history of philosophy course so that we could put the context of the physics into the whole idea of how it works with us and what it means in a bigger picture of things. And quite honestly, for somebody who was uh, very focused on the math and the physics and only took the other classes that I needed to to round out my uh, general ed stuff, to get into a philosophy class where there was no right or wrong answers, where you could just argue your way to a better position, which I never had a problem with because I'm number six of 12 in a family. That helps. So I, yeah. So I've got uh, six brothers and five sisters. And if you can't defend yourself in a family of 12 in terms of your arguments, you're just not going to eat. You exactly. Know? So, so getting into a philosophy class where there really wasn't, tests that had right and wrong answers or you didn't have to show your work necessarily was quite liberating. And it just so happened that the philosophy department was about to be closed as a separate department and they needed more graduates and uh, kind of being young and stupid at that point, feeling liberated my senior year. I switched majors my senior year. Wow. It ended up, but I actually ended up with a Bachelor of Science in Philosophy as compared to a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy, and had my math and business minor and physics minor. So I had like three minors and then my philosophy major. But quite honestly, it was, it was kind of fun in college, last year in college and all of that. But then I graduated and I was unemployable. So <laughs> what do you do with a philosophy major, right? Exactly. So, blessedly, a wonderful woman that I met in college, Susan, was a year ahead of me. And she had graduated as an elementary ed teacher and had a job. And she got a job up near the state capitol. And so since she already had a job, when I graduated, we moved up in that direction with her and we got married that summer. And I had to find something. So I worked on a farm that summer just to bring some income in and probably taught me more in those three months working on a farm since I'd never done anything like that before. And then I uh, just kept casting around and ended up being able to find a job with the Michigan Department of Occupational Safety and Health, or my OSHA. And they needed a statistician, and I was able to kind of convince the person who was doing the hiring that my math minor and my statistical background would be helpful for that. Right. So, so I ended up actually uh, getting in on the uh, Michigan OSHA side of things and learning quite a bit about workers' comp and injuries and then occupational safety and health and the regulations there. And given that we were newly married and that was an entry-level position, I figured, you know what, maybe I should learn a little bit more about this stuff so I can maintain a job. So I went back to school there right after we got married and got a uh, master's in public administration and then took a number of other courses related to occupational safety and health. So my background is kind of varied as you heard but professionally since the few months after college I've been in the safety and health arena and it started out more on the safety side but eventually migrated a little bit more to the health side and I can tell you about that if you're interested too.
1: Well here here's what I would like you to share there's a piece that you share with your students and with others that I've heard you share and it's always stuck with me and it was the story of why did you leave Michigan OSHA you had set this up long before you left and just share your philosophy on why you why you did what you did and how you ended up where you are
0: well thank you so what's interesting I remember as a young, idealistic, uh, recent college grad, getting in and happy to have a job and not being disrespectful to my employers or anything like that, and actually doing quite well and moving up through the system and was recognized as uh, one of the young guns, uh, so to speak, and et cetera. But I was surrounded by people who were interested in putting their 20 years in and retiring or 25 or 30 years or whatever it was. And it was a, an interesting kind of bureaucratic mindset. To the point where in those days, we still had printed telephone manuals that had, but I was in the state. And so I had a a copy of the state telephone manual that had listed by department and then the sub department and all the different people and their individual phone numbers so that internally we could talk with one another. And of course, we would get calls that would come into the office and they would be people who had no idea who they needed to talk to at the state. They just needed. They knew that they needed some help from somebody. And typically, they would come in and the operators or someone who would pick up the phone if they dialed the wrong number into our department, and it's like, well, no, this is occupational safety and health, and this is statistical department there where we're looking at workers' comp forms, and and you have a question about, you know, Department of Natural Resources or something like that. And too often, I would hear people in the office, and they would just say, no, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And so I started letting them know, well, if you ever get calls like that, just send them over to me and I'll spend a few minutes and I'll look up in the telephone book, see if I can't help them. And so that was kind of my side mission when I was working there. It's a good mission. Yeah. You know, just helping people. I just felt sorry for them. And over the years, I was there almost four years. I got less and less excited about doing that. And then after a while, it was kind of a burden to help those people. And, well, I'm kind of busy and et cetera. And one day it just dawned on me that I'm becoming like the very people that I was, I don't want to say mocking as much as it, that I was expressing an attitude that reflected the culture that I had been in for four years. Right. And coming from a large family, coming from uh, a family who had a father who was an entrepreneur and had his own shop and basically working since I was, you know, real way, since I was 13 or 14 years old, that just didn't sit with me that I was becoming a person who was there for the benefits and there to put in my eight hours. And it wasn't that I, I wasn't giving them what the contract deserved, so to speak, or what my responsibilities were. It was just that that's all I was doing, and my focus was elsewhere. So I remember going home and telling Susan one day, I said, I'm, I'm going to quit. And she's like, well, why? What happened? Did you, you know, have a fight with somebody or something? But, <laughs> right. she, knew, but she knew wasn't really going to be the case because I'm not that style of person. And I said, no, I said, I'm, just, I'm becoming the type of person that I said I never wanted to be. And I need to get back to being able to serve people with a whole heart rather than just out of a feeling of obligation. And at the time, once I just kind of briefly mentioned to some people that I might be looking for something else, I was afforded an opportunity to interview at the National Safety Council in Chicago and eventually became the manager of the labor department over there where I was working with unions and things. I'm proud to say I was the youngest manager, and I think to this day, I haven't really gone back and checked the statistics, but I'm pretty sure that I was the youngest manager to this day employed by the National Safety Council. Well, it was you, in my mid-20s.
1: You definitely had a hand that was guiding you all along the way up to this point. Here's the interesting part about that story that I correlate nearly every day to the situations that we run into with clients or even with contractors is this. You had made a decision ahead of time. you had purposed that when you got to a point where you felt like you were and tell me tell me if my words interpreting what you said are wrong, but when you got to a point where you felt like you had succumbed to a culture that was less than what it could be, it was time for you to move on and do something that was greater and something that would fit how you wanted to help other people
0: yeah, Dean, I think that that's an accurate statement. I would be very blunt and honest and tell people that at the time, particularly in my mid 20s uh, I did not realize uh, that I was being called to certain positions and stations in life i wasn't i didn't have that strong of a relationship with the Lord to actually understand that in retrospect that 's all very clear in terms of how he was guiding my path and how right. you know that I could be a uh, disgruntled uh, high schooler college teacher at this point with a bad tweed suit with chalk all over it, if it wasn't for you know some of those decisions right. that happened back there. But I think, I clearly believe that God had a plan for me. And I'm just sorry that I wasn't more in tune with it uh, when I was younger, but I'm grateful that he allowed me to see his wonder and his mercy in my life and continue to guide me even to this day. Yeah.
1: And I appreciate that. And here is a comparison that I make often in the remediation or restoration industry or contractors, however, people want to view this is obviously there's a number of different people who listen to this podcast and they'll come from different perspectives, but there is a disease that affects or afflicts probably every human being, if you allow it to, and that is complacency and to allow yourself to sink to a lower standard of care for yourself, for your family, for your friends, and for those people that you serve. And oftentimes in the industry that is supposed to be serving people, serving clients, doing mold remediation, restoration work, and and all of these things related, we have people who don't hold themselves up or maintain themselves or decide in the beginning that there is a point where they need to move on from where they're at to continue to raise their own standard of care. Likewise, I see it with clients. That clients can get bogged down even in their illness. We did at different points as a family. Fortunately, we had a bunch of kids. My wife and I were close and we supported one another. And so we helped each other continue to raise the standard up. And then we had key people like you and Susan come into our life at really amazing moments that we couldn't have designed that also helped that. And my encouragement to people who would be listening to this podcast today is, it is always easy to shift into neutral, but when you shift into neutral, you either come to a stop or you roll into or or off the road to someplace where you probably don't wanna be and you won't flourish. And so for the contractors who might be listening, it is, my encouragement is always, you need to cut a new edge every day. And we need to always be improving ourselves and our delivery to our customers. And to the clients, you also always need to be cutting a new edge every day even when it's really difficult and people don't realize and part of you know there's so much to each of our stories but there was one particular part of my story that was the beginning of 2014 and Michael you probably have forgotten about it but you might remember it there was the point in the training that i was going through with you which was three phases of training through the mold remediation technician, the mold remediation supervisor, the mold remediation professional. And when you get to that third level, you are required to write a paper. And I was at probably my lowest point of health that I had ever been at. And I was ready to give up the ship. And you didn't allow it. And from, from your standpoint of encouragement, and you encouraged me to move forward. And you helped with the edits and things like that so that everything made sense and it worked out. And so here we are today. It was those points where we have people come into our life and when we accept that from people and in fact when we're looking for those points from people, we don't realize how much energy and how much stamina that can actually build back into us. But if we just accept it and move that way, coupled with the decision that we're never going to shift into neutral, it's amazing where we can be one day that seems really dark and I'm talking to the clients right now who may be sick and who may be in homes and situations that seem bleak. But if you just hold on to those two principles, it's amazing where you can be even a year or two from now. And that's why that story to me has always been one of my favorites, because you demonstrated to me that there's a purpose and an intent about life. Not that you always know what it means, but that that principle is guiding you. So that was key to me.
0: Well, thanks for reminding me of some of that. I think the other thing too, though, is that at least for the clients that I'm dealing with. And you mentioned Susan, my wife, several times. She's ill right now. So she's. it's not a mold-related disease, uh, but it is a serious disease. And so we've been walking through that issue. But I think it is an, an awareness that it's easy to slip into, as you say, neutral. It's easy just to go to work every day and do the minimum that you have to do and maybe stretch on occasion to finish a project or something like that. But for the most part, just kind of glide along. I've got some experience now. I've got some history. Uh, this case is similar to the other one. I don't want to think real aggressively or don't want to put the effort into it. And so, well, we'll just treat this case like the last case and we'll just treat this client. You know, there's some similarities might be helpful, but if you don't take each case uh, on a case-by-case basis, if you really don't dig in and find out what the people are going through suffering, thinking about, certainly we want to apply knowledge from one case to another so that we can keep moving forward, but there's no identical cases and we have to be careful that we don't become complacent as consultants and contractors that we just set up, well, we'll just set up this containment like we set up yesterday's containment. We'll set the negative air machine the exact same way that we did over here because this building is the same size and looks similar. But where's the mold? What's the purpose? What are we here for? How does that have to adjust for each one? As you probably remember me saying in the classes, each time you have to read it. You have to read the room to figure out how to set it up. You have to read the client a little bit to figure out how to best help them. And there's more than a few times with, I'm careful. I don't press my faith on anyone. That's not... I'm happy to share it, but I don't force it on anyone. But there's also some times, and I've had many yeses and several no's, where I've recognized that what's going on is also you know, hurting them from a spiritual standpoint. They're at a low ebb from a spiritual standpoint. And more than a few times, I've stepped out on a limb and just asked people in person or on the phone that I'm dealing with on a professional basis if it was okay if we uh, finish the conversation by letting me pray for them or with them, depending on what they want. Yeah, And the results always surprise me that some of the people that I'm most nervous about that I think might not be interested, sometimes are the most interested and others that I get a sense, well, they really should appreciate this. And sometimes they're the ones that will say no, but right. there is a dimension to all this. I mean, there's a physical dimension, there's emotional dimension, there's a spiritual dimension to it there's a mental aspect to it. And if there's one thing that I've learned, and not just in the mold side of thing, you know, I've, we'll loop back in a minute, we'll talk about how, have a experience in the asbestos field and other indoor contaminants, indoor air quality and lead and radon and those sorts of things. But whether it's mold or whether it's some other contaminant that's impacting people, the reality is that it tends to impact their entire lives. You can't, segment it and say, well, it's impacting the building. Usually by the time we get involved, it is impacting the building, but it's also impacting their health. Yeah, correct. If it's impacting their health, it often is impacting their relationships. How many times have you seen situations like this that either drive the couples together or drive them apart? It is so sad for me to think back over the number of cases where we got involved that were mold-related cases where there was actually something that was – going on and by the time we actually helped them figure out what was going on and tried to get them to the right doctors to help them and stuff it had already irreparably damaged the marriage yes the spouse who wasn't impacted and now we know that there's a lot of genetics involved and so it's not like it's the person who's sick whether it be the husband or the wife or the children it's not like they have any control over that it's a combination of the environmental factors and the genetics. And just because their spouse has different genetics and doesn't have that impact. And then they get the, the skepticism of the medical community and the rest of their friends and stuff that he or she is just a, a whiner and it's all in their head. And right. it's not really real because the, quite bluntly, a lot of the standard medical community is slow to catch up on these things. And it, it has impacts well beyond just the physical, the emotional, the relationship, the spiritual. You know, how many times have you probably heard people like I have who said at their low points, they just felt like God abandoned them. There are yeah. people of faith who are willing to give up their faith. It's just, yeah. it's a horrible situation. And if I, and I, I think I'm speaking for you as well, if we can be a help in those situations and just really let people know that there are causes for this in most cases those causes can be remedied both on the environmental side and now the understanding that the we were probably in my opinion five to ten years ahead on the remediation of the building side than we we were on the medical side and the understanding that the remediation on the physical side taking care of the environment and then medical have to be matched and for a lot of people if you just go down one path and don't pick up the other they're never going to get better correct they they have to be merged
1: yeah and amazingly we were able to see that play out in real time in our life and everything you have said resonates exactly with me i'm absolutely convinced that so many people who will listen to this podcast and who are listening now are going to be impacted by the things you just shared and for the people listening i just want you to understand If this resonates with you, and if you're hearing what Michael is saying, not only the words, but if you hear the tone and the sincerity that he is talking to us with, I really encourage you, you must, must, must connect with materials dating back even 15 and 20 years that Michael has been part of writing or that he links in his websites to you. I link Michael's work to every one of our clients because it is so foundational to our industry and to the problems that people are suffering in their home. And I want people to understand that this is a key change point for them to be introduced to a person like you. And I'll I'll include Susan because you and Susan are part of this thing together and then your staff at WonderMakers. People need to connect with this part. If they fail to connect with this part, they're going to be tossed back and forth by the waves that are still alive and well in this industry and in the medical industry and so I just want them to know that right now and I want to wrap up the introduction part for this part of the podcast and If you've got time, I think we should bridge into a second part, and then I think we should go into a couple of other pieces but Where are you at right now and and what is your role? What do you do for people now?
0: Well, that's interesting and kind of links back to what I said I was going to loop to anyway. After I left the the Michigan OSHA and went to the National Safety Council, that's where I got my first taste of the occupational health side of things because at the time that I moved there, it was just at the understanding of asbestos being something other than a miracle mineral and actually having some health effects. And the health community, the occupational hygiene side of the equation was a little slow, in my opinion. There's a lot of different opinions here, but in my opinion, they're a little bit slow to catch up on it. And the wave of the asbestos um, broke so high and so fast that they needed professionals to help deal with it. And so quite a few of us on the occupational safety side actually wandered in, if you will, because there was such need on the asbestos side and started cutting our teeth on the occupational health side. And I am proud to say I was one of the founding members of the Asbestos Victims of America. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about a moment ago. What do I do? How do I help people? And the answer is, you realize that when people are hurting, particularly from an occupational disease or an environmental disease, or a safety issue or something like that, that our job is to support them throughout that process. But what I call compassionately critical, you can't just feel sorry for them, you got to help them figure out what's going on. And sometimes that's, that's a tough love sort of thing. It's like, come on, you got to get up, you got to get moving here, you can't be complacent, you can't stay in neutral. And for the person who's sick and isn't feeling well, many times that's a hard message and you're mean and you don't understand how I feel. And the answer is, yeah, I do have a sense of how you feel. Yeah. My empathy for hundreds of other clients, but also just some experiences on my own. So, And there are similarities, asbestos exposures and lead and radon and environmental diseases, chemical exposures, multiple chemical sensitivities. I've had an exposure to high levels of chlorine, an accidental chlorine release at a chemical plant. while well, I was there not for that issue. I was there for a different issue, and had an emergency and got exposed to chlorine. I had some lung damage, uh, uh, temporary lung damage and stuff. So when people say, "Well, you don't understand," the answer is, "Yeah, I think I understand a little bit more than you may realize." Chlorine lung damage is real. Yeah, and and when it occurs, and you know, that's another thing too, uh, Dean. I'll just kind of finish with this. Some of the things that I say in my classes, I don't go into the background, but they they come from real life. Mm, yeah. So I'm. I'm there at this chlorine plant for a meeting, and well, a chemical plant. It wasn't they were making chlorine, but they were making other things. And they had an accidental release of chlorine, and the alarms go off. And in some respects, people were a little laxadaisical on the office building side about following the protocols, getting out, getting to the assigned meeting area, and that sort of stuff. And then just being away from it until it got bad. And uh, so now I'm in a class, or I'm giving a seminar, even at a big hotel somewhere and I'll, I'll start and I'll tell people, Hey, if there's a fire alarm or there's some uh, alarm, don't look around. As a matter of fact, you can look at me because I'll be heading for the doors. Here's the (laughs) fire exits and I can talk to you outside just as well as I can talk to you inside or something like that. But we're not going to take a chance because, you know, on a personal basis, I, I still remember the pain and the, the wondering it was, wasn't more than a week or so, but the wondering, am I ever going to get better? Is this going to be permanent? Uh, the doctor's not actually being sure, and yes. things like that. So,
1: yeah, it's real. Yeah, it is. Okay, so so let's wrap up this part. We'll call this part one, and let's we'll take a little break, and then let's come back. and I'm going to open us up, and I want to move into a little bit of the Wonder Makers and the RIA, and especially into the manual that you wrote for the industry and actually that consumers could absolutely connect with. So let's do that. Let's go to part two, if you're okay with that, and and we'll finish it out that way.
0: That'd be great. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for listening to the Manage Mold Podcast. Do you have a question that you'd like me to answer raw and uncut on the podcast? All you need to do is head over to Apple Podcasts and do three simple things. Leave a rating and review telling me what you think of the podcast. In that review, ask anything you want related to your home's health. And if you want a shout out, leave your Instagram handle or name. That's all. Then listen in to hear your question answered live, raw, and uncut. This is Dean Malstead. Join us next time on Manage Mold.